Right. Oh, I, I think God has got a wonderful sense of humour because when I was at school, I was a late developer and, and I failed my history at all level. And <laughs> I don't know how I did it. Just, uh, just had a bad day. Really. I think Blackburn Rovers lost the day before and that was the end of it. And, uh, but anyway, here I am going around speaking on church history as well as pastoring. You may think the 1904-05 revival is very parochial. You may say, I really don't like Wales. I really, I really don't like, I don't like history. And uh, therefore, I'm going to turn off. I, I trust that I can make it interesting. It already is interesting, but I trust I'll be a good channel whereby you'll learn lots of interesting things. And it will sharpen our cri- critical faculties to, uh, to ask, well, if I was alive in the 1904 revival, what would my response be? It's, it's easy, isn't it, at one level, judging history. It's jolly hard judging life now, thinking, what should I do now? But looking back, you've got uh, the, the leisure of having a few years to think about it. I was aware of the 1904 revival not long after I was converted, and uh, I've always been very interested in that subject. And at, at the age of 21, I, I left Lancashire, having trained in horticulture for a number of years, working for the National Trust and for... Uh, for Liverpool Botanical Gardens, I went down to Cardiff to train for the ministry. And one of the reasons why I went to Cardiff is uh, is because there were lots of preaching opportunities. And some colleges gave you two or three opportunities per term. When you were in Cardiff, you could go out every Sunday. And I was one of those kind of people, I took every opportunity I had to preach God's word. And so I spent three years up and down the Romne Valley, the Romne Valley, and and the Gwent Valleys, and sometimes going further afield, either walking, on the train, or cycling. And when I was there for the day, I I must have been a pain to people. Every Sunday afternoon, I would say after having dinner, do you know anything about the 1904 revival? Do you have any relatives who were touched by the 1904 revival? I learned some very interesting things for people who were kind of the children of those who had uh, been converted in the revival. And then I took on a summer pastorate at the age of 22, which is quite frightening, really. Who would trust a church to a 22-year-old? Uh, and I was sent there for, for 10 weeks and had a wonderful time. And, and the most powerful thing I remember is that, is that one of the deacons was in his mid-90s. And uh, not long after I was there, he died. Not because of my preaching. <laughs> Maybe it was because I was making heaven so excited he just said, let's just go. <laughs> but he died. And can you imagine, me, 22 years of age, I've never taken a funeral in my life, burying a man in his mid-90s who was converted at the bottom of a coal pit just after the 1904 revival. And uh, he was compassmentous right until when he went home. And he said, David, I wasn't converted in the revival. I was converted in the afterglow of the revival. But the power of God was so tangible at the bottom of that coal pit, I could not go to the surface until I'd gone to my knees and yielded to Christ. And I was given the privilege as a young boy, kind of burying this man. His brother, who was 88, was on the front row. And when the service was over, he shook hands and said, Brother, it's me next. Then I lived uh, about five miles from Lucker for about ten and a half years, and Lucker is, is where Evan Roberts was based and, and where there was a real move of God. And I remember David Shepherd, he used to come and preach for me now, and then what a character he was. Uh, it was very difficult as a young pastor following someone like David Shepherd the week after. You seemed so bland and so boring. And anyway, he, he said, I'm going to show you where the revival started, brother. And he gave me a personal tour all around the chapel and said, it was here the spirit fell. 
let's get on our knees and pray that God may do it again. And, and then he took me around the back and it's him to blame. He showed me the grave of Evan Roberts and it's stuck ever since and I've spent my life <laughs> going round. What is a revival? A revival is not an evangelistic campaign. The, revival is the, the Americans are very good at misunderstanding English and if you're American I really apologise about that. <laughs> but they talk about putting on a revival. A revival is not something we put on. Revival is God showing up in the church. And how we long for God to show up every Sunday. And do something over and beyond our preaching, over and beyond our evangelizing. We just stand back and say, that is God at work because I can't do it. And I've come to realize as a pastor, the longer you're in a church, the more folk pray for revival. Thinking, Lord, it can't come through him. You've got to do something in this church. And so revival is not something that we work up. Revival is what God brings down from above. And I don't know why he doesn't bring it more often, but don't we long for it. By the way, revival is not the roof going off the chapel. Revival is the bottom dropping out of your life. And when the bottom drops out of your life and the bottom drops out of the church, you find yourself on your knees worshipping. And I've come to realize that God cannot be understood. And Paul was illustrating that this morning. God is beyond our understanding God is not to be understood. He is to be worshipped and adored. And we bow down and say, Lord, this is beyond my comprehension, but I worship you. My wife was doing some shopping one Saturday morning back in the 1980s, and I was sat in the car waiting for her, and uh, probably guarding the car, to be honest. And, uh, and I was sat there, and a man was being interviewed on, on BBC Radio Wales, and it was an old, old interview, so it was a recording. And the man who was interviewed him said, now look, People tell me that you talk about nothing but the revival. He said, many years have passed since the revival. Why is it you keep talking about the 1904-05 revival? Here's his answer. It's etched in my mind and written on my heart. He said, when you have been born in the fire, the smoke doesn't satisfy. And if truth were known, most of us have lived in smoky churches all our lives because we know nothing of the fire of God. And when you have been born in the fire, the smoke doesn't satisfy. What I'm going to do over these three talks is this. Tonight I want to kind of lead up to the revival and explain all that was happening behind the scenes. God willing, tomorrow afternoon we'll have a look at what actually happened during that six-month period. And then in our third study, our third talk, we'll stand back and say, so what? What was all that about? And I sometimes wish I was a Pollyanna. Do you ever wish that? I feel I was born under a minus star and see everything in negatives. And, and it's kind of, even when I come to the 04 revival, some folk go, oh, it must have been wonderful. I can't say that. And there are aspects of the 1904 revival that deeply disturb me. And I say to myself, if they were taking place in the church down the road, I'm not all that sure I'd encourage my folk to get involved. And also, what about Evan Roberts? Was he literally a man of God as we understand him, or was he slightly unhinged? Was he odd? If he was odd, he's the first odd Christian I've ever come across. <laughs> so I spent the past 12 months as well as the rest of my life reading about the 1904 revival. I have in my possession a cassette, which really I must put onto a CD, that was given to me by the late Vernon Hyam. He said, never let this out of your possession and never let anybody else hear it. So I would like to share it, but if, but if Mr. Hyam's looking on, he would go... I knew I couldn't trust that boy. It's a recording that he took in his church of two members of Mariah Lucker. 
which is where Evan Roberts was when the revival broke out. Uh, and uh, these brothers in their 80s were recalling what it was like being in the chapel when the Holy Spirit fell. And at uh, and the end, they then sing a beautiful duet, which is incredibly moving. It's part English uh, and part Welsh. When I was in Landsberg Major doing this uh, summer pastor, I was there for two years. There was a man there who was in his late 70s, and I went around visiting all the flock, and, and uh, he said to me, I gather you're interested in revival, David. I said, I am. He said, my parents were touched by the revival. He says, you know, I'm a single man. He said, I've got quite a bit of memorabilia. Would you like it? <laughs> and uh, he said, because when I'm gone, no one, no one really wanted it. And I tried with every bit of holiness to suppress greed and covetousness. <laughs> and I said, in a nonchalant way, okay, if you want to. <laughs> I was going down the road going, yes, yes. Uh, and I brought one or two of those things along there because... A man was sent along called Austin by the Western Mail, and the Western Mail is still in, in, in operation. It sent a man along to report on the 1904 revival and to put reports in the Western Mail. He got converted. So instead of just putting the old report in, he put lots of reports together, and every now and then you would get not so much a weekend supplement on, on life in Wales, but a supplement on what was going on in revival. And I've got a handful of those at the back. By all means, feel to... to Feel free to look at Be careful because uh, they are over 100 years old. And then I'm married to a Welsh lady. I've been married for 35 years. Uh, and uh, I don't wear a wedding ring. And, and folks say, you know, really as a pastor and as a married man, you should wear a wedding ring. And I say, do you think I would look like this if I was single? <laughs> Everyone knows I'm married. And uh, I love my wife dearly. And uh, she's Welsh. She speaks the language. And I've lived in Wales for 15 years. I now live in England. And uh, we watch Welsh television when it's on. We don't watch Northern television or Lancashire or Yorkshire television. We just watch Welsh television. Uh, and we're very much aware of what's going on in Swansea and Cardiff. Haven't the faintest idea what's going on in Preston or Blackpool or Manchester. <laughs> and we spend many holidays just wandering around Wales. In fact, a short while ago I said to my wife, I think, I think we deserve a break in mid-Wales. She said, why? There's a few conferences coming up. <laughs> Anyway, where do we start? Where do we start with the 1904 revival? I want to give you ten things that were happening behind the scenes. And I trust this will kind of give you a good understanding of, of, of what was going on. Where do we start? Number one, we start with the 18th century. In the 18th century, there was a supernatural move of God right across Wales called the Evangelical Revival. And it had nothing to do with John Wesley. It's surprising we have this kind of strange notion in this country. Evangelical revival, John Wesley. And we saw last year when it came to Benjamin Ingham. Benjamin Ingham was saved, converted, and preaching the gospel in Yorkshire before John Wesley knew what the gospel was. And the same was true in Wales. There was uh, Howell Harris of Talgarth, William Williams Pantakerry, Daniel Rowe and Lance Gaitho. Uh, and these were men who were passionate about the word of God. They were... Ordinary people who were suddenly supernaturally saved by the gospel uh, and then said, the world has got to hear about this. Let's start in Wales. The, the hymnist of the three of them was William Williams Pandekelly. You've heard of him. We sing his hymns. He wrote a thousand hymns. Most of them in Welsh, some of them in English. Uh, and then the kind of the pastoral one of the three was, was Howell Harris from, from Talgarth. And then there was uh, Daniel Rowland. Daniel Rowland was the preacher. He used to hold monthly communion services down in Llangaitho and 5,000 people would come to hear him preach and break bread. 
on one occasion, he felt unwell. He had a servant, by the way. And I said, Lord, if this is revival, bring it. <laughs> he had a servant. Uh, and on one occasion, down in Rome, he didn't feel too well. He said to his servant, you preach. You've heard me preach often. I've said, you preach one of my sermons. So Daniel Rowan's servant got up and preached and thought got converted. How do you explain that? It's unbelievable, isn't it? And by the way, who were, who were the most critical of, of these men as they went around Wales preaching? Well, the church. These three men faced criticism from the magistrates, from the mob, and from the ministry. And we have to understand religion, organized religion, has been the biggest enemy of the gospel. Who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? Religious people. It's always the case. Well, these men faced great opposition. And by the way, the English didn't speak very warmly of this. And uh, the English were going around saying, oh, you Welsh people, you're jumpers, that's all you are. You're jumping up and down over the gospel. What did Dan Rogan say? You call us Welsh jumpers, I don't mind. I'll tell you what I call the English, sleepers. These men through their preaching, laid a solid foundation of an understanding of the gospel. They were, by and large, independent men, and also they were Calvinistic in their theology. Hence the reason why you have the expression Calvinistic Methodists. Who was more Calvinistic, John Wesley or George Whitfield? George Whitfield. And that's why the Welsh revivalists of that era warmed more to George Whitfield. Secondly, you then have what is called the 1859 revival. A revival broke out in America that crossed the Atlantic, that came to Northern Ireland, that went to Scotland, that went to Wales, and virtually missed England. I'm not saying England wasn't touched, but in comparison to these other countries, hardly touched at all. And this is the key point, and I think this is absolutely crucial. When the 1859 revival came, there were people in 1859 who remember the movings of the evangelical awakening in the days of William Williams, Howell Harris, and Daniel Rowland. When the 1904 revival came, there were people alive who were alive in the 1859 revival. There has been this continuity for us. If something broke out today, there is nobody alive who remembers 1904. They've all gone. That generation's gone. And so there were people in 1859 who said, I've experienced this before. This is just like what happened before. And when 1904 came, there were people who said, I was there in 1859. It's like 1859 all over again. And the 1859 was, was an incredible, incredible revival. In a period of 12 months, 110,000 people got saved. And I can take you to a small chapel just outside Aberystwyth. Sad to say it's now closed. It used to be a museum of nonconformity which is uh, an interesting thing in itself. And on the outside of the chapel, there are two plaques, one in Welsh and one in English, to say it was here that the fire first fell in 1859. There were two men, Humphrey Jones and David, uh, David Morgan. David Morgan, he said, I, I went to bed like a lamb and woke up like a lion. Don't we pray that every Sunday? I do. Lord, may I wake up like a lion? And then he said, one day, I don't know why, I went to bed like a lion and woke up like a lamb. He said, but during that time of, of turning from a lamb to a lion, God moved. And this man, he, he led. It's unbelievable. I don't know how many he led to the Lord. He was just an ordinary person like you and me. He didn't understand what had happened to him. But suddenly as he was in the pulpit, he said, God is here. 
And he began to preach the gospel in a way that he had never preached before. And many, many people came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this 1859 revival, which hit Wales as well as Ireland and Scotland and other parts of the world, was solid preaching, good theology, strong hymn singing, and a great emphasis on prayer. Men who were around at that time were people perhaps you've heard of. Christmas Evans, the one-eyed preacher. Guess what day he was born on? <laughs> and uh, I was on holiday with my wife just a few weeks ago in Wales and just literally around the corner from where we were sort of stopping there was a little school there which says this is where Christmas Evans was born so how much longer will that be there for in this day and generation but anyway he was, he, he was a great preacher he died in Swansea but his last words were drive on coachman Drive on, coachman. Those are very, very powerful words. John Elias. You must have heard of John Elias. If you flip through Christian hymns, you'll find a hymn by John Elias. It was said of John Elias that while men of his generation pruned the papal tree, he pulled out the axe. And he laid it to the roots. When John Elias died, 10,000 people came to his funeral. And if you go to Fangevney on the Isle of Anglesey, again, I was there with my wife and through some strange connections, I found out who had the key to the John Elias Memorial to ch- Chapel. If you live a nonconformist building, you will drool. <laughs> I just stood there thinking, this is... I took photographs. Absolutely amazed. I said, how many folk worship here now? I said, about a dozen. So there were men like Christmas Evans and John Elias who, who were preaching the word of God. You've heard of Henry Rees? Maybe not. He was a great preacher. He was born in a village called Hansanen. His brother was William Rees. So that rings a bell. Yeah, he wrote, Here is Love, Vest as an Ocean. A village so small, but had two chapels, and two brothers went to different chapels. <laughs> One was a great preacher. The other was okay as a preacher, but he was a, he was a, he was a brilliant hymn writer, and he wrote, Here is Love, Vest as an Ocean. Loving kindness as a flood. Powerful hymn. Henry Rees had a daughter. And when she heard that Dale Moody was preaching in Liverpool, out of her own bank account, she sent the fare to many young ministers on the Isle of Anglesey and said, get on the train and hear that man preach. And many a young minister on the Isle of Anglesey, if someone's kind of paid for you to go there, wow, Liverpool. Travel to Liverpool to hear a man preach about the love of God in a way they'd never heard of before. Who changed the life of Dale Moody? Henry Moorehouse. Remember him? From Manchester. Who's got Henry Moorehouse's gravestone? <laughs> You've guessed it. Yeah. Roger and I carried the Ark of the Covenant all the way from Manchester. <laughs> uh, and we, we put up the stone. Anyway, isn't it amazing how small the world is? So here's Dale Moody preaching passionately. Henry Reese. His daughter pays for many to go. Here's the fourth thing, third thing. One of those young men who went was a man called Richard Owen. Richard Owen only lived until he was 48 years of age. He died just 17 years before the revival broke out in 1904. During his short life, having heard Dale Moody preach, he said, if he can do that, I can do that. You know it is, and I do not mean to be rude by saying this, but you know how some people, they cannot preach the gospel without first of all going through the whole Westminster Confession of Faith? Not the shorter one, the longer one. (laughs) And then when folk do get converted, they're not too sure about it. 
he suddenly heard a man preaching and offering the gospel. He thought, that's, that's wonderful. And in a day of some heavy preaching, he said, that's how I want to preach. And in his short life, do you know how many people this man, Richard Owen, led to Christ? 13,000. And uh, you'll find, find his gravestone in that picture there. And I remember standing there thinking, I'm standing at the gravestone of a giant. Wouldn't we like 13,000 people to meet us in glory to say it's because of you I'm here. You pointed me to the Savior. And then there was the forward movement. That's the fourth key. As the 19th century was uh, coming to an end, there was a man who was a Presbyterian minister called John Pugh. And uh, his, his church was full, but he acknowledged he was pastoring a dying church. And, and I, I've been a pastor for nearly 35 years, and it takes a lot of courage to say, Do you know something, I think I'm pastoring a dying church. That if, if something radical doesn't happen, I know this is the last generation. And one of the great things about Christianity is this, is, is that when God has moved his, removed his spirit, you know it's dead. You know, well, the reason why it's closed is because there's death. And he said, the church is full, things are going on, but I realize people are not being converted. Why? Because the great unwashed are out there. So he said to the Presbyterian church, all that we're doing is just looking after people until they get home to glory. We're not winning people to Christ. So he said, I want you to release me as an evangelist to go and reach people that, that are not hearing the gospel. They were very hesitant. The Presbyterian Church is another name for the Calvinistic Methodists. How in a short period of time, the Calvinistic Methodists, who had field preaching and going all around Wales preaching, then start to say, we're not so sure about you going out reaching people. How quickly they've forgotten. Well, they kind of released him. And, and guess where he started? Splot in Cardiff. And uh, when I was training for the ministry, I was assigned a church in Splot. And uh, I was renewing some gas policy on the phone the other day, uh, and I picked up a Welsh accent and I said, whereabouts in South Wales are you from? She said, from Cardiff. I said, I used to live in Cardiff, tell me more. She said, I'm from Splot. <laughs> I said, how many customers do you speak to who know where Splot is and have been there? And what's more, have preached there? Nice to talk to you, sir. So he, he, uh, he went around and said, we've got to get outside our buildings because all that we're doing is, is cultivating death. And so during his life, he built 42 mission halls. 42. And uh, just after the 1904 revival, those mission halls could say that they had 7,000 members and 22,000 hearers. And they were training up 1,000 people to go out to evangelize. So how, how did he pay for 42 mission halls? just so happened that there were two brothers in Cardiff called the Cora brothers, who were multimillionaires, who were into shipping, big shipping magnets, and, and they said, we'll, we'll support you. Remember I told you when we spoke on William Booth, they also named one of their ships William Booth, and said, whatever the William Booth brings in financially, you can have it, William Booth. And on its maiden voyage, it sank. But... Uh, <laughs> That was God's verdict on it. <laughs> when Dr. Lloyd-Jones left Harley Street and went down to Bethlehem Sandfields, 
he went to a forward movement mission hall. So it wasn't so much he went to a church, he went to a mission hall. But I tell you, it's some impressive mission hall. And uh, the kind of mission halls he built, so was the Heath in Cardiff. Wow, that's absolutely amazing. The fifth key is R.B. Jones. Just north of uh, Pontypridd is a place called Porth. And uh, at Porth, the valleys divide into Rondevach and Rondeval, the big Ronda, the little Ronda. And it's the most interesting place. There at Porth was a man called R.B. Jones. There's one word he did not have in his vocabulary. It is the word grey. He was independent. He was Baptist. He believed in the authority of God's word. And he believed that unless a person is born again, they would not be in the kingdom of God. He preached that passionately. And because of that, most of the major denominations in Wales shunned him. When the Holy Spirit really came in the 1904-1904 revival, I would say, outside of Evan Robertson, we'll deal with him tomorrow, Arby Jones was probably the most powerful preacher. And for credit, this man ran himself into the ground trying to pen all those who'd come to Christ. Evan Roberts did nothing to pen the sheep. But this man said, okay, we've got all these converts, what do we do with them? We've got to give them Bible training. We've got to teach them how to pray. We've got to teach them how to evangelize because they're totally alien to these things. And so he set up a Bible school in Porth. The Porth Bible School. And uh, he, he sadly died quite young of a brain tumor. But he ran himself into the ground. Now, I've got to be honest, he did run a tight ship. An incredibly tight ship. And maybe some of you were brought up in Brethren Assemblies that were a tight ship. Well, he, he ran a tight ship and he, he wouldn't kind of take any, any messing around. But for credit, he was going around Wales preaching before the 1904 revival, telling people, you've got to be born again. Being Baptist isn't good enough. Being Presbyterian is not good enough. You've got to be saved. When Dr. Lloyd-Jones arrived in Wales after the 1904 revival, he, he said to Dr. Lloyd-Jones, would you come and work with us? Dr. Lloyd-Jones, consider this. (laughs) Well, he considered it and said it wasn't for him because he found R.B. Jones too humorous. And without being rude, Dr. Lloyd-Jones wasn't exactly a laugh a month, was he? (laughs) Uh, I think every sermon he preached for the last 50 years is I should look to draw your attention too. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, how about this? This is unbelievable. It's one of the biggest regrets in my life. I've got many regrets. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. <laughs> when I became a pastor in, in 1985, the church of which I became a pastor, every minister in that church was still alive when I became the next pastor. One of my predecessors was a man called F.S. Copleston. And when... R.B. Jones started his Bible college in Porth to teach the children of the, of the revival the things of God. He employed F.S. Copleston to teach them Greek. Could you imagine that today? That's a, and I, I, I didn't know that. And here's a man I knew, I would see now and then, and he was always very, very kind to me. And then it was too late when the penny dropped. This man worked with R.B. Jones. Why didn't he tell me? 
This man worked with a man who was one of the key men in the revival. Just to tell you something rather funny, he was an academic man, was Mr. Copperston, and a very gracious and a very lovely man, but he was too highbrow for the church. And uh, the deacon who told me this story just recently went to the Lord in his mid-90s. He said, because I was the youngest member of the diaconate, the diaconate gave me the bullet to fire on their behalf to say, your time here is over. What a thing to say to a pastor. So he said, I I, I saw Mr. Copperson. Mr. Copperson, I've come on behalf of the church. We love you dearly and we like your preaching, but we think your time here is over. This is the man who's worked with the man in the 1904 revival. He understands a little bit of the church I was in. Wish I'd known that before I went there, but anyway. So uh, he took it graciously. So when it came to the farewell meeting, the church stood up and said, Oh, Mr. Cobbleston, we love you as a preacher. We love you as a pastor. And then he got up to speech and said, you know, I didn't know I was so loved, so I'm staying. <laughs> so he stayed a little bit longer. And after a short while... They said, no, we are serious, you've got to go. And uh, he was incredibly, incredibly gracious. So he, he sat at the feet of I.B. Jones, this passionate man going around Wales preaching uh, and sharing the gospel. And then six of them were the Joshua brothers, Frank and Seth. And uh, they were converted before the 1904 revival in a Salvation Army meeting. And God called them to be evangelists. But tell you the kind of man they were, men they were as evangelists. Not a kind of two sermons, three suits. They were evangelists who read the Puritans. So here's Frank and Seth, converted in Neath, reading Sibs, Manton, Goodwin. Wow, these men are thinkers. These men had a passion to reach out to the kind of people that they were before they became Christ who would never come into churches. They said, we've got to do something about these lost people. They're everywhere. And they're not going to go into the church. They built a mission in Neath called the Neath Mission. If you go to Neath, it's still standing there. There's a photograph on the board there. It holds a thousand people. And such was the charisma of these men and such was the spirit moving through these men in Neath at that time. People used to queue to go into the evening service. A thousand people. And when John Pugh sort of put up a tent in Splot, remember that man who was pastor of in church? He said, what better men to fill a tent than the Seth, Joshua, uh, Frank and Seth Joshua. And so those men came. And they put the tent up and they put a boxing ring in the middle of the tent. And they advertised there was going to be a fight here tomorrow on Sunday morning. And, and, and one man came along and, and he said to Seth Joshua, who's the fight between he said, it's me and a bloke called Beelzebub. <laughs> he said, I've never heard of him before. He said, you come along. He said, he's got quite a punch. <laughs> uh, and, and so come 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning in, in, in Splot, you mean, here, here are the Joshua brothers. The tent's packed to the doors. Here's the boxing ring. In gets in Seth Joshua, and he preaches the gospel. What a powerful man he was. And he was, he, was, he was very imaginative in his preaching. On one occasion he said, I'm not going to preach from the Bible directly today. He said, I'm going to answer questions. He said, I know questions you've got in your mind and things that are stopping you becoming Christians. He said, here's one question I keep coming across. I'm not a Christian because I'm not one of the elect. 
he said, how do you know you're not one of the elect? He said, who told you about election? He said, you haven't thought that up. He said, you got that from the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians, and you got that from 1 Peter. That was addressed to Christians, not you. Stop opening other people's letters. <laughs> he said, the Gospels was addressed to you. And in the Gospels it says, who said the will may come? So let's put that argument on one side. What an imaginative man he was. And don't forget, he was generally speaking to Presbyterians, who were kind of brought up into this stuff. And, 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 and so here are the, the Joshua brothers. And, and a, f- a friend of mine got access to the, uh, to the Neath Mission Hall about 12 months ago, and I went in, and it was wonderful to go into the, to the vestry and, and all these photographs of the giants who used to preach there. These days, 30 people. That's all they get, 30 people. And then, by the way, I mentioned Seth Joshua. He not only preached in Wales, he also preached in London. People in London said, oh, would you come and do a mission for us? And so Seth Joshua, this kind of converted man from Neath, went all the way to London, this big mission. How many folk got saved? Three. Two adults and a boy. And uh, he came back thinking, oh, this is, this is awful. You know, I feel very... Very weak. Do you know who the, who the boy was? Donald G. So who's Donald G? He was one of the pioneers of the Pentecostal church in this country. And I had a couple in my second church. I'm always burying people. I buried them as well. They were wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, and they said they knew all the Pentecostal giants. They knew Billy Burton, Harold Horton, Donald G. And they said, boy... If ever a man knew what it was to have an anointing of the Holy Spirit on his life, let alone his ministry, it was Donald G. And here is Seth Joshua coming back from London thinking, that's a total waste of time. And he leads a pioneer like that to the Lord. And then there's Keswick in Wales. Just before the 1904 revival broke out, there was a Keswick meeting in a place called Hundrendod Wales, right in the centre of, of, of Wales. Who was the speaker? F.B. Mayer from the Melbourne Hall in in Leicester. Who was a big organiser? Jesse Penn Lewis. And you'll see a picture of her on on the back and you think, just thank the Lord she's not my mother-in-law. Fierce, tough-looking lady. Uh, My mother-in-law was a very, very kind and generous lady. Uh, I thank the Lord for her. So they put on this this Keswick in in Clandering, Dodd Wells. F.B. May was the main speaker. A number of people wrote to F.B. Mayer saying, we feel dry. We're involved in Christian work. We're not seeing much fruit. We feel dry. One of them was R.B. Jones. And they said to F.B. Mayer, do you mind at some stage during the convention, you come and address us young men? And so F.B. Mayer did. But what is astounding is this. When the 04 revival occurred, we have documented evidence, and I've got it here before me, and I don't know how much to read out and how much to leave in, sort of, F.B. Mayer was claiming to be the catalyst for the 1904 revival. Which is quite interesting. You know, and uh, he, he explains how uh, he, he met all these young men, and he met Evan Roberts, and it was through what took place in that Keswick convention that triggered the 1904 revival. A Welshman Canutlian Jones, 
he, he wrote to the Western Mail about this. You know, the one that included uh, magazines about the revival. And I'll read you the letter. The Reverend F.B. Mayer and others advanced their claim to be originators of the Welsh Revival. The publication of the former's claim created a painful impression. After an interview with Mr. Evan Roberts, I wish to say to these claimants for honour, silence, silence in the presence of the Lord. This is the Lord's doing, not yours, directly or indirectly, and it's marvellous in our eyes. By the way, Mr. Mayer is only a shadowy name to the young revivalist who has never met him or even heard him. So much for the higher life. In fact, I never read of the higher life in Scripture. I just read of the lower life. Hmm. Keswick in Wales may have not been a big influence and certainly had nothing to do with F.B. Mayer, but without doubt, things were even happening there. Who was at that convention? Seth Joshua. And Seth said, yes, God is moving here, but I don't like this inward perspective of just being holy for the sake of being holy. He said, if holiness doesn't lead to service, what's the point of it? And also, because he was a man who read the Puritans, he was a little bit uneasy with the Keswick emphasis on holiness, which is interesting because Dr. Lloyd-Jones never ever was invited to Keswick because he disagreed with her understanding of holiness, and the man was spot on. Because if it was right, Keswick would still pursue that kind of theology today. But it's wrong. And these people barking up the wrong tree. The eighth key is what I call general unrest. We often think that all the chapels were empty and that the nation was on one big slide, but it wasn't. It wasn't. At the beginning of the 20th century, generally speaking, things were quite healthy in attendance. How about these facts and figures? Half of the Welsh-speaking population in 1900 attended chapel. Half. And a third of non-Welsh-speaking people were church members or attended. And in 1900, there were 4,000 non-conformist ministers in Wales. That's a great deal of ministers. But here's the problem. They went to church, but they weren't saved. And people who were saved found it very frustrating being surrounded by people who were religious and in chapel and had all the jargon but knew nothing of the grace of God. And if you have been involved in Christian work, there is nothing worse than working with an unsaved elder or an unsaved deacon or unsaved members. It drives you mad because they don't understand things. And, and while the place may be packed to the doors and folk go, wow, isn't it wonderful? When you are working with these people behind doors, it is very, very difficult. And I've been in that situation on several times in my life. What was the problem? Higher criticism. Liberalism. And it was very popular in the church in those days to, uh, to talk about evolution and to praise Charles Darwin and to uh, <coughs> eulogize about German scholarship. Did you see it with the anniversary of Charles Darwin a couple of years ago, how the Anglican Church apologized to Charles Darwin? And then, where's he buried? Is it any wonder the church is shaking when that is in the foundations of the church? And this was right throughout Wales. Kind of liberal understanding of scripture, dismissing the historicity of Genesis 1 to 11, 
and, and he went from college to pulpit to pew. A man called D.M. Phillips, who was in the 1859 revival and was alive in the 1904 revival, said this, preaching in my generation had turned from spiritual to scriptural to doctrinal to philosophical. Dr. Kerry Evans, he uh, finished up being a personal friend of Dr. Lloyd-Jones and lived around Newcastle, Emlyn. His brother, David Emlyn Evans, wrote that beautiful hymn tune, Trewen, a sovereign protector of I, great Welsh tune. This is what Dr. Kerry Evans said, a man who was used in the 1904 revival. Popular preachers, uh, most of them did not aim at convincing anyone, but simply of expanding the text in a masterly way than having a good time. And that's a warning to us as preachers, isn't it? That you're not there just to have a good time in the pub and you go and think, I really preach well today. I think I really understand the text. The question is not just having a good time in the text. The question is, are you offering people Christ? Are you showing the riches of the gospel? He said all that these men were doing in the pub was showing how clever they were. Also, chapels were just community centers. So there was lots going on, but there was nothing going on. I find it interesting that even, even the forward movement, which was started by John Pugh, when Dr. Lloyd-Jones came down from Harley Street to Port Talbot to Bethlehem Sandfields, even, even Bethlehem Sandfields had a hall with a stage for drama. In such a short time, it had gone from proclaiming the gospel to outsiders to how can we entertain them. And so you can imagine, here, here, here's the church secretary, Here's a young kind of budding man who comes from Harley Street and, and they walk into the church hall. And this is as true as I'm stood here. Uh, and the church secretary to Dr. Lloyd Jones, well, this is the church hall. What should we, this is the church stage. What should we do with it? I quote Lloyd Jones, chop it up and feed it to the church boiler. Imagine doing that today. He said, this is not, this is not going to change the church dancing around on the stage putting on Christmas productions and Easter productions and putting on all these pantomimes. He said, burn it. Well, in the end, they sold it to the YMCA. That is the organization, not the band, by the way. <laughs> my first church, Town Hill Baptist Church, was uh, built in the 1920s. And how about this? The church started with the church hall. They said, when we built the hall and got people in, we'll then build the church. That was that mentality. So for ten years, they never did get round to building the church. The church hall was a church. And so for ten years, I preached on the stage. It's the only time I've ever thought of being on the big stage. And uh, I had stage fright every Sunday. But, but that's kind of the mentality. Let's get people in by a social means. And by the way, here we are a hundred years later. And you probably, maybe in churches, are making the very same mistake. You bring people in on that ticket. They want to be on that ticket to be kept in. The only way to get people in is when they're powerfully born again by the Spirit of God. Uh, and this is what some of these people were, were, were kind of learning in, in, in a general way. There was a real thirst in, in the hearts of some ministers for, for God to move in their own personal lives. And then for God to move in the churches where they were pastoring. I mentioned Dr. Kerry, Dr. Kerry Evans from Newcastle Emlyn. I, I just recently read his autobiography. 
And he explains that when God moved powerfully in his life, he went back to one of his churches to apologize to them. To say, I'm sorry that when I was your pastor, I didn't preach the gospel as I should have done. That took guts. And so there were men like W.S. Jones and W.W. Lewis and Kerry Evans, R.B. Jones, Nantlice Williams, all these men kind of were, were going around and saying, God has got to do something in our lives because we can't carry on banging our heads against the wall. But things were changing. Just here, just there. Some folk have this strange idea that people woke up one morning in Wales and revival was there. All these things were kind of taking place in people's lives. When I was preaching up and down the Ramla Valley, there was a chapel called Nova Triorque. It was the cathedral of nonconformity in Wales. I once met a man there who said, as a boy, I went to hear Campbell Morgan in Nova Triorque. The place was so full, the only place my father could put me was on the bottom step of the pulpit. And I watched Campbell Morgan preach. There, they said, in just before the revival, in one year, 106 people had been converted. 106. Just outside Pontadawe in the same year, over a two-month period, 230 people were converted in one church. So God was staring in West Wales. God was staring in the Rhondda Valley. And Dean David Howells, if you go to St. David's, it's the smallest city in our country. You kind of you go to St. David's, there's a beautiful cathedral there. At the back of the cathedral, there is a huge bronze plaque to say this man was the dean of the cathedral. And he wrote a letter. And he wrote a letter to every minister in Wales as the dean of St. David's. He said, this may well be my last letter. And believe it me, it was. Never put that in a letter. <laughs> And his last letter to every Anglican clergyman in Wales is this. What on earth are you preaching? What is the state of your, your congregation? And he said, unless God moves in you as men in the pulpit and moves in the church, there is no hope for the church in Wales. It is the most passionate letter. I can read it out in full, but time is running. But by the way, as I've been through this letter so many times, there is no reference to a helter-skelter. <laughs> And there's no reference to crazy golf in the nave. But he said, we must know a touch of God in our own personal lives and a touch of God in our churches if we're going to go out and have a chance in the world. And I was there just a few months ago taking a photograph of this. And it's all in Welsh. And my wife translates it. And folks are saying, what's this? What's this? Oh, I'll tell you what it is. And there at the back of St. David's, I get to share the gospel with a few people saying, this man knew a touch of the Holy Spirit and encouraged Jesus. Well, that's nice. And then there's Evan Roberts, number nine. Evan Roberts was a Welshman born in Lacher, just, just outside Swansea. He had a gentle conversion at the age of 13. He was involved in the unions. He worked at the coal pit with his father. His father broke his leg. And so Evan Roberts went down the pit with his father to help him with his broken leg. Imagine going down a pit with a broken leg. Uh, and he was paid 55 pence per week. When his father recovered, obviously he got another job in the mine. And uh, he was down there for quite a while. And then he wanted to come out of mining. There was an awful explosion in the mine where he worked. 
And for him, it was the day he wasn't there. But he always left his Bible where he worked. Uh, and, and when he came back, the whole thing was scorched. And he said to himself, if I was here, I'd have been killed. By the way, his Bible was open at that portion in, in 2 Chronicles where it's begging God for revival. So he got out of the pulpit and became an apprenticed blacksmith. And while he was there, he had a great desire to go into the ministry. And uh, he handed in his notice and he said to his minister, I feel called to be a preacher of the gospel. But the minister said, but you're not trained. He said, I know I'm not trained, but I fear I must preach the gospel. And he said, I've already handed my notice in. So the minister said, well, you better preach tomorrow. <laughs> so he preached his trial sermon the day after, and the congregation had to vote there and then as to whether they thought he was suitable for the ministry. Uh, and the congregation said, he's okay. He wasn't a great communicator, but he's okay. And so they said, you can train for ministry. But the trouble is he packed in his job. And uh, he wasn't up to speed. And so it was agreed he should go down to Newcastle Emlyn to a man who trained men up to a certain level to get them into college. It was like a prep school. You know, teach them basic English and basic grammar and, and things like that. Just said to myself, thank God they didn't have those when I was going into this. I'll still be in the prep school. And, and so he had quite a number of months to hang around. And if you read the life of Evan Roberts, he says, it was during that time God began to deal with me. And, and some of it, I have to say, I do find it hard to believe. I, I don't call the man a liar, but it's, 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 it's something I've never come across before. He said, every night, for about six months, at one o'clock in the morning, God would wake me up. And he said, for several hours, God would commune with me, and I would commune with him. And God, he said, revealed to me he was going to pour out his spirit upon Wales. He said, I knew it was going to happen. And he, and he said, then come about six o'clock in the morning, all communication ceased. And my family couldn't understand why I was lying in bed. He said, but they weren't Christians. And I couldn't say to them, God is dealing with me. So he said, I never told them, just thought I was lazy. And this went on for weeks and for months. And let's be honest, we kind of, we scratch our heads thinking, I've never come across that before. Never come across that before. And then you think to yourself, is this man exaggerating? Is he kind of looking back with rose-colored spectacles? But there's no getting away from the fact, God was dealing powerfully with this young man, preparing him for preparation school for the ministry. But God had other plans. And then finally I'll close with this because my time has gone. In Newquay, key number 10, things were happening. There was a minister there of a chapel called Tabernacle called Joseph Jenkins. He wasn't really a pastor, he was an evangelist. And he was preaching his heart out in Newquay and all around there but wasn't really seeing much happen. He said to Seth Joshua the man who accused folk of tampering with other people's mail, why don't you come down to Newquay and uh, perhaps lead one of your missions? 
Joseph Jenkins was so concerned that nothing was really happening after his preaching that he said to his uh, church leaders, I'm going to call a young people's meeting after the morning service. He said, because unless they're arrested, we're finished. And so on a Sunday morning after the morning service, they'd have a drink and then they'd have a, a young people's concern meeting. How many young people do you think they got? 60. Now, let's be quite frank. We as pastors, if we had 60 young people in our church, we'd be happy. We're doing really well. We send out the new sheet, show photographs. This is us at, this is us at Pizza Hut. This is us temping bowling. This is us taking selfies. Isn't God blessing us? And then this kind of, you know, the early 20s. Here's the young marriage. So the church was quite full. But he said, nothing's happening. We're just coming, singing, preaching, going on. Nothing's happening. So he calls these young people together and says, I want to ask you, are you saved? He went round them one by one. Are you saved? Are you born again? What's God doing in your life? Imagine doing that in a young people's group today. He's have their parents on your back going, hey, you lay off my child. The good Baptists. <laughs> and God, God began to move among these young people. Suddenly they were being born again by the Spirit of God. Down came Seth Joshua to lead a mission. Nothing happened. He was so disappointed that he and uh, Joseph Jenkins went to the next village, a place called Blinanach, quite near the Cardigan. And uh, they went there uh, and they had a mission. And that's when things really started to happen. Suddenly, the church came alive. Young people were converted. Older people were converted. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God began to move. And at the end of the mission, 40 people had come to faith in Christ. By this time, Evan Roberts is now at the prep school improving his grammar and the principal says to the students there's a man down the road leading a mission. I think it's probably more important you go and hear him preach than hear me lecture. You go and hear him preach. And Evan Roberts was there when 40 people got converted and young people were jumping up explaining that God has saved <coughs> That left a powerful impression on the life of this young man. And then suddenly, boom, the 1904 revival took off. But it didn't happen in a vacuum. All those things were taking place. Well, there we are. That's all I have to say tonight. I could say a lot more. I've tried to keep it as short as possible. But that's the 1904 revival and all the keys that brought it together. Let's pray.